Hi, I would like to introduce Daniel Genter, the CEO of RNC Genter Capital Management. Give us an introduction to RNC Genter. Well, RNC Genter has been in operation for over a half a century now. And uh, so I, I know it looks like I started in kindergarten, but the, uh, we've actually been doing this for uh, over 50 years. And the, our focus is primarily working for institutions, high net worth individuals, for investors that primarily are really looking for retirement type of income. That we start off very, very conservatively with both our equity strategies. Uh, we offer a full complement of equity strategies that it tends to be primarily focused on income production and security and risk avoidance. The, on the other side, we also use fixed income, uh, which ranges from tax-exempt municipal bonds to corporate bonds to government bonds and government agencies. And then in many of our strategies, we blend those together just depending upon the individual client's tax profile and ramifications. So what we really do is a very, very custom portfolio that's going to be utilizing either large cap, conservative, dividend paying stocks, and primarily investment grade bonds that we're using to really prepare for retirement or provide for retirement. As I mentioned, we've been doing it over 50 years. We have approximately 70 employees. Uh, we have a headquarters that's in Los Angeles, though we have several regional offices around the country where we also have uh, clients literally in all 50 states and, and really start from scratch with a blank pad to really customize those portfolios for clients for long-term results for them and their family. RNC Genter is celebrating 50 years of anniversary, so can you tell us about it? It's exciting. Well, I think it's very significant when you look at people in any industry, regardless of whether or not it's production, whether it's technology, uh, it doesn't matter what it is, to have someone be in business for over half a century continuously without interruption is very, very unusual. And, and it really makes RNC, the, what I envision it to be, is it's like a family company. Uh, you know, we have uh, people here that start with us right out of school. Uh, many people, it's their first and only job. Uh, frankly, it's my first and only job. Uh, people ask me for my resume and I said, well, all I have to do is give you a business card because I've only had one job. You know, I came here right out of business school and then worked my way up through the company. Uh, I became a shareholder in the company uh, back in the early 1980s. Uh, we sold the company in 1990 to Bank Austria. Uh, and I ran the company for six years for Bank Austria and then bought the company back in 1998. So even though it's had some evolutions, uh, literally I have a one-line resume. It's been my only job. And uh, last September, I celebrated my 40th year here. So I literally have grown up here. I've spent my entire life here. And I'm not the only one. Uh, we have a very high percentage of our staff uh, that's been with me over 20 years. Uh, we have, a, again, a, most of the staff, frankly, on a percentage basis has been here over 10. And I have uh, several people that have been with me either at or in some cases over 30 years. So we treat it like, you know, we're, we're a business and it's a very intense business, but we treat everybody here like family and we try to treat people um, somewhat biblically, if you will. We try to treat them the way that we want to be treated. And I think that shines through, you know, with the longevity that we have here. And, uh, and that's, as I mentioned, very unusual in any business. 
uh, but particularly in the financial business. In the financial business, this is a fast-paced, very intense business, usually has a tremendous amount of turnover. And so I'm personally very proud of the fact that you know, we're not only a strong growing company that's highly productive with very good performance, but we can do it in an environment where you know, people are treated with respect and they're, they're treated decently and they're provided with a career path here and they stay with us for a long period of time, which, uh, which again, we think is very important to our clients. And, and that shines through with the clients because we have uh, literally many, many clients that are here for over 30 years and um, you know they, they grew up with us too. They started their careers, they started investing, they started savings, and uh, and then they finished their careers here. And so that's you know we look at the at the long term and providing service that way. I am pretty sure there is a lot of people out there that would like to know how do you start in finance? What make you get into finance? Well, originally I was destined to go to law school. Uh, I it's all I ever wanted to do. I worked as a law clerk when I was 14 years old in a, in a law firm in uh, New Orleans, Louisiana, which is where I was born. And that's all I ever thought about, frankly, never considered anything else. Uh, but I also felt that I probably wouldn't practice law the rest of my life. I would get a legal education. I would, I would practice it, and, but I was always interested in business. And uh, then when I went to, to undergraduate, then I had my first economics class, uh, which was with a uh, professor named Dr. Pilgrim. And, the, uh, and it was something that just totally clicked with me. It was, it was actually almost comical because uh, most of my friends, fraternity brothers, people I was playing football with in college were struggling, barely getting by in the class. And it was just so, it was easy. It was like so natural for me. Uh, and I remember very distinctly once I got a 98 on a test and I went up to go complain because I felt that he shouldn't have taken the two points off and I should have gotten 100. And, and all of my friends almost threw me out the room you know, at that time. So, but it was one of those things that just clicked with me and it, it stayed in my mind. I had a chance to come out here to USC's business school. Uh, and, and then I had a chance to really study under some world-class professors, uh, one of which has become very, very notable, Arthur Laffer, uh, who for those of you who remember, you know, basically he wrote the Laffer Curve, you know, which was the first model that really took taxation into consideration. And later on, it really it became known as supply-side economics or Reaganomics, as most of you know it. And so I really had a chance to watch all that go from literally the blackboard uh, into literally national public economic policy. And, uh, and so I was continuing on and actually had been accepted in the law school. I was going to go to law school. I was frankly two weeks away from going to law school. And, um, and my father actually was working on his MBA at Pepperdine. And there was a guy in his class that said he had a small investment firm and they were really going to try to build that up. It wasn't even their primary business. And, uh, and they started talking and, they, and, the, and the person said, well, you, know, you should have your son come meet with me. And, uh, and my dad came home and I said, Dad, all I want to do is be a lawyer. I said, I'm literally accepted in law school. I said, I'm leaving in two weeks, Dad, to go to law school. And you want me to go talk to this guy about a completely unrelated field? And he said, yeah, I do. He said, I think the guy is starting an interesting project. And he said, what's the hurt? Go up there and have lunch. Well, needless to say, that person was a very good salesman. And, and actually, I really began to think about what he was saying. And, and, uh, and again, going in the back of my mind was this 
tremendous interest that had developed in, in economics and the economy and economic research and, and just how fascinating it had become to me. And, you know, really sat back and, you know, had some, uh, you know, come to know Jesus thought sec sessions and, and, uh, and said, well, you know what, I guess I can always go on to graduate school or law school later. And this is kind of a unique opportunity with a startup firm. Uh, literally, they had under 40 million under management, which barely pays for a cup of coffee in this business now. And, uh, and I thought, all right, well, I'll go give it a try. And, uh, and if it doesn't work, it doesn't work. But I'm young, I'm single, I'm 22 years old. I was used to being broke and starving, so a little more broke and starving didn't really matter. And so uh, I went, they had a, uh, actually a, their office building was right across the freeway from where we are now in Westwood. And uh, they gave me a very small office that I had to take the, the brooms and the sweepers out to get, to get in there. They gave me a telephone. I had no salary, no draw, no expenses, absolutely nothing. Um, but you know what? I loved it. And so I pretty well started to death for the first two years and just kind of slowly built clientele. And, uh, and, and that's where we started. And we're a little over five billion now. So it's, a, you know, it, it's been a fun journey. I know RNC Genter has five billions in assets under management. Can you tell us about it? So one of the interesting stories for us is really how the company has grown because as we've discussed, we've been doing this for almost half a century. We've had nice steady growth. And I started here when we were under 40 million in total assets and then steadily grew the company. And, and in the very early days, uh, basically we were managing small, very small pension plans, mainly individuals. And uh, the real catalyst of growth that we had in the early days really grew out of our entertainment division. Uh, we're obviously we're located in West Los Angeles. Uh, it's really the the mecca, still the center point for the entertainment industry. And and as those individuals were making money, then the ones that were more and more sophisticated were getting more and more sophisticated help, primarily from business managers that were doing both accounting and indeed, as the name implies, managing their business affairs. Well, well, with those individuals who were very sophisticated, most with a CPA background realized is that they didn't have the expertise to manage the money for the, their clients. Clearly, the clients didn't have the expertise. And, and really, to be able to make sure and assure that those people were going to have money when the lights went out and the mic was turned off, they really began to look for professional help. And, and fortunately, being right here in West LA, we were really able to develop some very valuable relationships, uh, many of which that still continue to this day, and managing money for entertainers. And that's, you know, including some of the largest entertainers in the industry right now that are household names. Uh, we manage for people that are, that are actors and actresses that are in front of the camera. Uh, we manage for just as many that are, that are producers, directors, writers. Uh, and musicians, and, and so it really was a very strong base and nucleus. Uh, with that, we obviously had, uh, we grew, we gained some notoriety, uh, really began to venture out into managing pension assets, and it was, uh, it was really, one, frankly, one day at a time. It was somewhat the old-fashioned way uh, that we grew one client at a time. I mean, clearly, since I bought the company back in 1998, we were a little below a billion dollars, about 850 million, and and now we're over five billion. So we we've had some more rapid growth, certainly since then, 
which is not only still working with the business management community, uh, but also you know, we have a very large high net worth individual business, and we now have an institutional side, which really is working with all the major brokerage and wire houses in the country of any substance, which has really allowed our growth to be uh, you know, more uh, at a higher pace, but still very controlled, which is important to me to continue to maintain our quality. There is a wide variety of portfolio offered. Can you tell us about it? The focus for us has always been very conservative. You know, we started off managing money for entertainers. We started off managing money for pension plans, endowments, trust. So that job number one for us, and this really permeates through the entire firm, is preservation of capital. Number one, don't lose any money. You don't make money losing money. And so preserve the capital, make sure the capital is liquid, and then try to find, provide a reasonable, moderate growth rate commensurate with the level of acceptable risk. And so that's always been our goal. And so we've, we've really built our product mix, which is now very vertically integrated, you know, around making sure that we maintain those basic tenets of preservation of capital number one, moderate growth with income and risk control. So every product that we have always maintains those base principles that we feel guide the firm. And whenever we see something that is going outside of that, then uh, you know, we, we make sure we're just not gonna be drawn by, a, by a, a siren's song to go off into some place that's going to be more aggressive or that's gonna be outside of our mainstream that extends the risk profile. So what we do in line with that is on, is on the common stock side, even though we have, a, we have a core strategy, we have a value strategy, we have a dividend income strategy, those are all large cap stocks, they're very conservative. They're either very, very large, literally averaging about 150 billion in capitalization, uh, domestic companies, or the same size, you know, really uh, household brand names that are international. So we use both international securities, domestic securities that are, that are meeting those overall parameters. The same thing on the bond side. Uh, we use corporate bonds, we use municipal bonds, we use treasuries and agencies. Uh, and generally, everything is investment grade. Now, in, in our, one of our more aggressive corporate strategies, which is still conservative by industry standards, uh, we will allow a small portion that goes into the highest level of non-investment grade, which would be double B. But they're all going to have that focus, which is to generate very high income, whether it be dividend or whether it be Duke coupon, and then to have hopefully moderate growth. I mean, we are, we are actively managing the equities, of course, and then we're actively managing the fixed income. Uh, the, uh, the, the days of a, of a safety deposit box mentality for bonds is over. And if you're gonna add total return and control risk, you have to actively manage it. So for us, it's, it's active management, it's feet on the ground, be there every day, and then add as much value as you can within a, a very well-defined risk profile. Let's talk about high dividend. Well, it's a, it's a mainstay of the company. Uh, I mean, literally, the company was operating for about 10 years uh, before I joined it. Obviously, it was very, 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 very small. And the, uh, but we were managing high dividend stocks literally that predate me, and I've been here for 40 years. So it's, it's an absolute cornerstone of our business. And, and it's what we have that incorporates in a lot of our equity strategies. But in particular, 
we have a very specific high dividend or what we refer to as a dividend income strategy. And, and what that focus is, 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 is large cap, both domestic and international stocks. They have some minimum dividend requirements and the overall focus is to generate a, a very high yield. Uh, we try to target, can't always do it, but we try to target uh, double the S&P 500 dividend flow and then provide moderate growth on top of it. So the, the way that we do that, I mean, doing it is, takes a lot of research and a lot of hard work to really find the names, but the overall philosophy is actually quite simple. Is that, again, we're looking for, as I mentioned, large cap securities that are paying a minimum of a 2.5% dividend. Uh, typically, they're at least $2 billion in capitalization, so they're large companies. We want to see that they've been paying a dividend well, for at least five years. Uh, now, most of the companies we own have been paying dividends for over 20. But we want to see at least five years of steady dividend flow and no dividend cuts during that time period, unless there's some uh, extenuating circumstance. There's a merger or there's a government regulation like happened in TARP. You know, we're not going to go through this with blinders on. You know, we're going to look at reality. But overwhelmingly, barring some unusual circumstance, They've not only paid dividends for over five years, but no cuts in dividends for the, for the last five years. On average, the, the income from our portfolios is, is increasing at about roughly 9% a year. And, the, uh, and overall dividend growth by itself is normally averaging somewhere about 6 to 8% a year just from growth of dividends. So what we're really looking for is, is large cap companies. And frankly, we don't care where they're from. Uh, we screen every listed security that's listed on U.S. and American stock exchanges. Uh, we screen all the large international companies that have ADRs. So that's the only requirement we have internationally, that we want them to have an ADR. We don't want to get into uh, currency transactions. But that's about 500 names. And, and basically all, all the big companies that pay dividends that we're interested in all have an ADR or an American depository receipt which means they trade on U.S. exchanges, and we, don't, and we can buy them in dollars. We don't have to buy them in foreign currencies. So what we do, it's, it's about as equal opportunity as you could possibly be. They all go into the hopper. You have about 5,000 domestic names. You have about 500 international names. And let the best man or woman win. Uh, we don't care. I, I don't care if we're 100% international. I don't care if we're zero international. And, and there's times we've been zero international. Because I'm not going to walk down the hall and say you will be 15% international because tomorrow then we'll be 15% international. But we'll be buying second stringers instead of buying the best, which may be domestic. On the other hand, I'm not going to say you have to be all U.S. because there might be in a foreign country. There's a better company that's a technology company or a medical or a biotech that that's what we want to buy. So as I mentioned, it's, it's, it's may the, the best company win in the purest sense of the word. So that all goes in. As I mentioned, we're looking for 2.5% dividends. We are targeting double on the portfolio, uh, the S&P. Right now, we're averaging about 3.6% in dividends, which is almost dead nuts right at double the S&P, which currently is about 1.8. And, and so that's the dividend side. And so the first thing that we do, there's really three phases of this. And the first thing that we do is, obviously, as I just described, it has to have the dividend. It's got to have it where there's, it's a certain level. They've done no cuts in the dividend. We want to see that basically we have dividend integrity or it's, we're not going to waste any time on it. All right, now the second phase is really looking at the company's balance sheet. 
So we really now say it has a dividend level which is acceptable and so it's worth looking at. So now we want to see what's the integrity of the dividend and where do we fall in the debt structure. And that's a very unique part of our process because a lot of people look at dividends and they say, well, here's a high dividend, here's a company that pays a dividend, the dividend's rising, uh, that's fine, it meets our criteria, let's go. And, and to us, that, that's potentially a ticket to a real problem, if not disaster. Because uh, in many cases, a company may have a very high dividend because the stock value has declined. So it's a, it's a high current yield, but it might be caused by a problem and they're not gonna be able to maintain it. So what we wanna look at is then say, okay, forget about the dividend. We're now gonna look at the balance sheet like we are a bond investor. All right, because that, that dividend is as important to me and as sacred to me as the coupon on a bond. Now, but I know full well, if the company gets into trouble, they're gonna cut that dividend or eliminate that dividend long before they miss a coupon payment on a bond and default on a bond. So look, you just have to realize that, you know, you're, you're in a secondary position in a subordinate position to the bondholders. All right, so I wanna see who they owe. I mean, what's their outstanding debt? What do they have in bond structure? What do they have in banking debt? What do they have in cash flow to pay their fixed income obligations that are clearly gonna have priority over me? And, see, and, and then make sure, okay, there's enough free cash flow after all that debt service that I've got the appropriate coverage and my chances of having that dividend eliminated because of cash flow coverage, cash reserves is very, very low because I'm, I'm putting them at a very high standard. We have to realize that, that the dividend is gonna vary. So I'm actually expecting them to increase the dividend and not cut the dividend. I want it to go up six to 8% a year. So now what I'm doing is I'm saying, look, I wanna look at this like a bond. I want you to pay me like a bond. I want the integrity of a bond, but oh, by the way, it's a variable rate, but the variable rate only goes up. So every year, and I only expect you to pay me, I expect you to pay me more every single year. And so I'm holding them to a pretty high standard. So, and if they're, if they're doing that and they're meeting all those criteria, then, I'll, then the next thing I wanna do is I'm gonna go back and look at the last time they had a hard time. When was the last recession? When was the last time they had a business downturn in that sector? When was the last time they got cash squeezed? And what did they do? You know, was, did they maintain the dividend? Was the dividend the last thing that they cut after they took all other measures, selling off non-core assets and so on, things that companies do to secure their financials? Or did they go to the dividend first and cut the dividend first and leave the stockholder hanging? You know, I don't wanna be with a company management that has that kind of mentality. So, so that's really looking at their dividend philosophy. All right, so if all those things come together, we know we have a proper dividend level, they're increasing the dividend. We know they have proper cash flow coverage in the balance sheet that management is committed to the dividend. So we got those two covered. All right, then the next thing I'm gonna do is I'm gonna take that and I'm gonna strip all that away. I'm gonna say, all right, now let's look at this stock as though it pays no dividend. Would I buy the stock paying no dividend? Just the stock for the stock, because I like the company. And I better be able to answer yes to that question. All right, because it doesn't do you any good to buy a company that has a 4% dividend Dividends growing at six to eight percent a year, and then you lose twenty percent on the stock because the stock goes down. I, I've, you know, I've never seen an investor that would be happy with that. And I said, I'm not going to be happy with that. So we want to avoid it. So we look at it and say, fine. What's the valuation on the stock? 
because we're, look, we're, our target is to have three and a half, four percent dividend. We're targeting a 10% total return. So I need 6% that's going to come from the stock. And so I need to make sure that standalone, that stock is going to go good, is going to do well. And so we strip that away and look at it independently. And, and so those three processes of making sure you have dividend levels and performance that you need, making sure that you have proper cash flow coverages and management support in your dividend, and then making sure the stock by itself is a good investment are really the, the primary footings of what we do and you know what we have five equity analysts that are doing every day. So I want you to explain to us social responsible. Well, we have several portfolios that are socially responsible. We actually offer that in, in all of our strategies, both stocks and bonds. But again, our most popular equity strategy is a high dividend strategy. And, uh, and we offer that in a socially responsible format or what the industry now calls ESG, which is uh, environmental, social, and governance. So they're really combining all of those things to give, in essence, a score of saying, you know, how do you treat the environment? How are you dealing with social issues? How are you dealing with governance issue, issues uh, within the company or board of directors? And so that, that's the common term for socially responsible uh, is ESG. So we offer a strategy that we've done for quite some time. Uh, as a matter of fact, it's really, even though we now have a formal strategy that's called ESG, we have been doing socially responsible portfolios for well over 20 years. Uh, and the real nucleus of that is, uh, was our entertainment clients, frankly. You know, our, our entertainment clients tend to be uh, much more focused on socially responsible things. So years and years ago, uh, frankly, they were well, well ahead of the curve in asking us to not invest in tobacco, not invest in, in many cases, in military stocks, not to uh, invest in either oil companies in some cases. You know, so there was a, many, many things that, you know, basically we had to deal with uh, that we did on a very custom basis for them. Because sometimes it was broad, sometimes they just didn't want alcohol, tobacco, they just didn't want nuclear power. So we, you know, did and still have the ability to really customize these strategies. Tell us about ESG, the RNC gender way. So one of, one of the ways that, again, we became increasingly experienced about ESG or socially responsible was also through one of our major clients. And it's a, it's a public client, it's a public fund, so I am at liberty that I can discuss it because it's a matter of public record, and that is the city of Santa Monica. And so we've actually managed portfolio assets for uh, approximately 20 years for city of Santa Monica. And, uh, and for those of you that are aware of Southern California, especially Santa Monica, West LA, uh, believe me, you, you couldn't possibly think of any socially responsible consideration that we haven't had to deal with with City of Santa Monica. Uh, and they are definitely at the forefront. Uh, they are way ahead of the game uh, and have been way ahead of the game nationally for many, many years. So we became very accustomed to dealing with those things, frankly, before ESG and socially responsible investing, before it ever had a name, had a word, before anyone even ever knew that it existed, uh, we were dealing with that both for them and many of our entertainment clients. Now the overall strategy itself and what we really do uh, does not differ significantly from our general high dividend strategy. As a matter of fact, what we're really doing 
is that we're making sure that, that all the parameters that we would need to meet our high dividend strategy are met. And so basically these are companies that we would buy, in many cases do buy, for our regular mainstream portfolios that don't have an ESG focus. Now the only difference is, is that once we have that core buy list, if you will, of securities that would be our preferential securities to go in purely for performance and income, then we do another layer. We do another screen, which is really looking at what is the record for those companies from an environmental standpoint, from a social standpoint, from a governance standpoint, and then where do they rank? And there are, there are a number of ranking services that are utilized. Uh, there's uh, several that you know, are somewhat of national standard, you know, one called Sustainalytics that we will use unless a client wants to outline their own standard, uh, which they can do. They can customize it if they want to tell us they want us to follow a certain track. And so, but at that point, we're not going to go buy things just to fill holes. All right, we're going to look at the companies that we like. We will run it through those screens. And, and if it, uh, where it comes out from a certain ranking, if it meets the standard, then we'll buy it. If it doesn't meet the standard, it'll get cut out. Uh, you know, the reality is, if you want to pursue an ESG portfolio, Look, base reality is you cut out a lot of energy companies. All right, you cut out tobacco companies. You're cutting out power companies that have nuclear power. You know, clients do have to realize that we've been doing this for over 20 years. We've got a, a very strong track record in it, uh, but we can delineate for those clients that there, there are going to be ramifications of doing that. You know, nothing's for free. So if you want to do it, frankly, sometimes it'll help you. Uh, last year it helped. Uh, clients pursuing that strategy were our best performing strategy uh, because all the energy was out and energy wasn't a good sector. All right, now energy may come back and be the best sector next year and they're going to be behind. So people just have to, uh, the only thing I encourage people to do is, is make an honest and fair assessment of the decision that you're making. And if you're going to do that from an environmental and social standpoint, then you know, then we'll be able to implement it for you. And we've been literally doing it successfully for over two decades. So uh, we know the interest rates are very low, very, very low actually. So where do you think people should be investing? Well, I think right now it's, it's, it is very, very difficult, as you mentioned, the interest rates are at literally, literally historical lows. We are seeing new lows that are being made in the overall marketplace. And, and certainly it's unprecedented even in the time that I've been in the business. I mean, it's, uh, it's, you've, we've never really seen anything like this, and it, and it doesn't seem to be changing anytime soon. So, and at the same time uh, that we have historically low interest rates, we have, at least in the, in the United States, we have this large baby boomer bubble of all these babies that were born after World War II that, that now the, you know, beyond the leading edge, leading edge is in retirement already, the big part of the bubble is it has a very short runway to go into retirement. So guess what they all need? They need income. So here they've been working their whole life. They've been saving. They've built up 401k plans. They've built up their portfolios. They've worked with companies like, like us. And now they're getting ready to retire. And you've got a 1.6% 10-year treasury bond. You know, and so what am I going to do? All right. Well, there's a number of different options. But if we look at the, the more traditional options on income, which is frankly is where people need to look at. Every, every time in the last decade, 
that people have ventured outside of traditional bonds, you know, whether it be them going into structured investments, whether they're going into hedge funds, whether they're going buying windmills and oil wells and all solar panels and all the crazy stuff they come up with, everyone has been a disaster. I mean, disaster, disaster, where not only are they not seeing the income, in many, many cases, they lost all their money. All right, so there's a lesson in that. You know, don't be, be careful of pushing the edge or hanging your toes over the edge because sometimes the footing below you is, uh, is not stable and you end up falling off a cliff. All right, and it's happened, I mean, there's just one example after another. So the reality is what's really worked has been traditional fixed income. And, and for people that are in higher tax brackets, then overwhelmingly it's been municipal tax exempt bonds. All right, because those bonds are not taxed. They're not, none of the bonds are taxed federally. And if you buy bonds in the state you live in, then they also don't have any state tax. So if you live in New York or you live in California or wherever you live, you buy bonds issued by state and local governments in, in your state, then you don't pay the state tax and you don't pay any federal tax. So they're totally tax free. So, so bear in mind, if you, if you have a municipal bond that's paying one and a half percent and you're in a high tax bracket, you would have to make 3% to be a taxable equivalent. Because if you pay 3% taxable, then you paid 50% in taxes, which is what you're going to pay in California, New York, some of the high tax states. You had 3% taxable, pay 50% in tax, you would net one and a half. And so the muni bonds generally are going to be yielding close to that after tax range. So don't get afraid of saying, oh, I'm only getting one and a half percent, because it's really like you're getting three and you are getting taxed on the three. It's a it's taxable equivalent. So it's the same thing. So muni bonds are, you know, they're still going to be in that two and a half to three percent taxable equivalent type of a range. So it's still not a bad investment. And the, the key with that is gonna, it needs to be managed actively. All right. And, and we do both. I mean, we do what we call passive ladder strategies where you buy bonds that are one to five years, one to 10 years, one to 15. We actually do all three. And for example, in a one to 10, you put 10% of your money in one year, 10% in two, 10% in three, 10% in four, and then it rolls down, matures, and you put it back out. You know, the one matures, it goes to 10, and you've got this ladder, which is why they call it rungs on the ladder, that you're managing. Well, that's, that's fine, and it's very, very passive, and we do it, but, the, but frankly, where it's actively managed is really where you're gonna get your benefit, because as you look out in maturity, the additional income that you get per year of maturity, because you normally get more interest as you go longer, that doesn't step up linearly. You might find to where you go from one to three years and it goes like that. And then you go three to five and it's like that. It does, you don't get any benefit. Then, then seven to 10, it goes like that. So it's much better and to be able to manage it actively and rotate it and then gain additional return also, you can be a little more selective on the individual issues because you're not just waiting for it to roll down. You can sell something, buy something. You can be active and, fed and add performance. Now, the, the same is also true on the taxable side because on the taxable side, generally you're gonna have U.S. government-issued treasury bonds, U.S. government agency-issued bonds, and then you're gonna have corporate bonds for public corporations just like you have stock for public corporations. Now, in all of those areas, quality becomes key. Now the U.S. Treasuries are going to be U.S. Treasury, uh, U.S. Government Full Faith and Credit. It's basically AAA plus. Same thing with the agencies. 
it only and the reason you go between one or the other is what pays you more or less and it's really more of a quantitative decision on the corporate side you know now you're looking at corporations the same way that you look at stocks and you're looking for their health you're looking for their earnings growth you're looking for their cash flow coverage <clears throat> the only difference as you go down into the corporate side is the corporate market right now is not a triple-a market okay the the big companies because they've been taking advantage of lower interest rates, you know, very smartly said, hey, if I can borrow money cheap and you're giving me money for nothing, I'm gonna borrow as much as I can, all right? Smart, you know, if they say, hey, you can refinance your mortgage at zero interest, you're gonna do it, all right? And that's really what we've seen. These, so these companies say, fine, I'll borrow as much as I can, but that's still debt that shows up on the balance sheet, even though the debt service they're paying at lower rates is very low. So they're still extremely healthy, but they have more percentage debt because they're smart and they're borrowing the money cheap. All right. So, but because of that, their ratings now were, you know, ratings in the past were AAA, AA, single A. 85% of the market now is, is single A and triple B. So if you're going to play in that arena, you ha that, then that's the schoolyard you play in. And you just have to be aware of that. It wouldn't, it doesn't scare us. It shouldn't scare you. These are big, healthy companies, and it's just they're doing smart things, and they're just borrowing more money because money's cheap. So, but that having been said, you know, you, you really, you need to have professional capability and research analysts and credit analysts on staff like we do to really separate the wheat from the chaff and get in there. But the corporate side does generate higher yields, you know, so now you're going to be able to do three, three and a quarter, three and a half, and it's particularly attractive for two reasons is that if you're in a lower tax bracket, say you're only a 25% tax bracket, well, instead of having the one and a half percent net after immunities, you're better off to have 4% in corporates, only pay 25% tax, then you're at three net after. So it's very much of a tax decision. And then on top of that, the corporate arena opens a little more opportunity, all right? Because there tends to be more mispricings, okay? You, you don't see that many articles that, that come up about the city of LA or, you know, the city of, of XYZ and, and then and going to be that that's going to depress the bond. But in the corporate world, that happens all the time is that, you know, you've got Johnson and Johnson and all of a sudden somebody says they got a problem with the baby powder. All right. Well, the stock sells off, the bond sells off. We look at it and say, eh, there's no problem with the baby powder. And so we buy in and then all of a sudden it comes back. Oh, guess what? There's no problem with the baby powder. The stocks go up, the bonds go up. You make money. That's the deal. That's what you pay us for. And, the, uh, and so a lot of that decision is really looking at your taxes and where you want to be, and then you customize the portfolio, you know, to be able to generate the income. But right now, just as importantly, more importantly than ever, because the interest rates are low, is that you've got to have active management to generate return on top of the income. That is, if I can leave you with anything, that is the number one thing right now. It's just not a time, you cannot be passive and lock it up in a safe deposit box and say, oh, everything's gonna be okay. You know, you need to be active, you need to be out there, you need to have boots on the ground and making stuff happen. Can you go ahead and talk about bonds? So one of the first things when you start to look at, at any bonds that are not US government and treasuries, because uh, US treasury bonds and treasury agencies, slightly different, but for all practical purposes, they're backed by the US government and they're considered the, the highest level or like AAA plus. When you begin to look at either municipal bonds or you begin to look at corporate bonds, 
then there is what's called a, a, a nationally accepted rating system for rating those bonds with regards to credit risk. And, and that starts both on the municipal side and then also on the corporate side. The highest level is AAA. So it goes in descending order. As you, as you descend that, then it's assumed that there is higher principal risk. And normally there's less cash flow coverage to cover the debt, which is what it's all about. So they, the rating services come in, they look at your balance sheet, they look at the cash that you have on hand, they look at your cash revenues, they look at basically how much cash you have on hand as a reserve, how much cash you have in cash flow. Uh, just like a bank's gonna say, do you have enough money to pay your, your car payment? Uh, it's the same thing. You know, Do you have enough money and how much money do you have to pay your coupon payment, your debt that you're gonna pay on these bonds? And so depending on the magnitude of that coverage, you will be starting at AAA, then you go to AA, single A, then you would go to triple B, double B, single B, and then C, all the same triple C, double C, single C, and all the way to D, which is a very bad letter to have because D means you're in default. You are not paying your debts. You've got serious problems. Basically, it's, it's time to go look for a flight on Southwest Airlines. Right? So when you begin to do that ranking, the people have to look at and realize that that is a somewhat quantitative but also subjective rating that an outside agency, it's, like it, it's basically the corporate and municipal bond equivalent of a credit score. That's what it is. It just works with letters instead of saying you've got a 720. And they're going to say you've got AAA, AA, and then there's in between those, those are the broad gradients you actually have ones that are in between. You know, you can have single A plus, single A minus, and they're kind of telling you the trend of where they think it's going. But the point being is that as you look at that, there's very distinct ways to see the credit risk that you're taking. And so if, if you go down in rating, you're taking more credit risk on those parameters I just described, but you expect to get paid more. More risk, more return. So you're going to expect to get a higher yield based upon that. And then you just have to decide, or we have to decide, is, is it worth it? And then it's something that clearly happens to be, has to be monitored. But that's also one of the reasons in the municipal area and then also in the corporate area, there's a lot more opportunity. Because we can be looking at something that has a, a single A rating or a triple B rating. And we're looking at it saying, hey, the earnings are growing. The sales are growing. Everything is good. The cash flow coverage is good and it's getting better, but the, but the rating services are gonna be behind the curve and we can jump in there a little earlier and say, hey, we're getting an extra half of 1% in this <clears throat> and they really shouldn't be paying that much. So it's inefficient, it's cheap. We buy it, get the extra half of 1% and then if we're right, everybody else starts to realize that and basically the bond goes up in value. So with that, you're getting the higher yield picking up the extra half of 1% in this example, and hopefully you pick up a few percents in appreciation, and then at some point it might get to be where it's, it's gone up, in our opinion, too much, and it's overvalued, and we'll sell it and move on. So the, the key is to be, you know, keep your eyes on the horizon and, and keep them open and be light on your feet and don't fall in love with your bonds. You need to make, you know, you need to move and be flexible to maximize return. Dan, um, do you think you'll have a lower investment return if you do social investing? Well, it's actually very hard to tell because you, you have to really look at 
what is involved from a functional standpoint and a portfolio management standpoint when you do social investing. And, and so sometimes, frankly, it may help you uh, because it's what social investing ends up doing when you look at it in its purest format is obviously you are, you are making a conscious decision that you are not going to invest in certain companies based upon their environmental, social, or governance policies. All right, so if you decide not to invest in XYZ company, then if that company does well, then you miss out on the return. Uh, if that company does not do well, then obviously you're actually ahead of the game. So, I mean, personally, I feel that you actually do not historically give up very much in return by investing socially. And, and the reason I say that, and I believe the empirical evidence is, will back me up, as a matter of fact, I'm quite confident that it, that it will, is that very good companies that have good management tend to do smart, responsible things. So if, if you have a resource, I mean, and, you're, and you have a long-term orientation, which generally bigger companies do, well, you don't want to deplete that resource. Uh, you don't want to soil that resource. You don't want to destroy that resource. I mean, that's something that you're going to need for maybe the next hundred years to generate profit. So you don't want to do something, you know, that, the, again, the bigger companies that are long-term oriented, not maybe some small company that's very short-sighted trying to survive, may make shortcuts and do things that are, that are not appropriate for survival. But the very big companies are doing things that, you know, that they feel, if, even if it's for selfish reasons, they want to sustain themselves and have sustainability. So, so those companies tend to be, despite their industry, more environmentally sensitive just for their own existence and their own sustainability. And the same thing as you begin to look at socially responsible things. I mean, the reality is if, you know, when we really condense this and say socially responsible, what does that mean? I mean, it, it frankly means being a good citizen and it means treating people right. You know, not being prejudiced, not doing things that are that are differentiating or discriminatory. I mean, these are smart things. If you're trying to sell things to the public, you don't want to alienate people. And frankly, you want to have the biggest consuming group possible. And so you want to include everybody. And so just smart business is doing things that make people friendly towards your products. And the same thing with corporate governance. I mean, the, I mean, you can be looking at things from the standpoint of affirmative action to say you want to get more diverse groups on boards of directors as employees. I know from my company, you know, we've done that, you know, from our existence because it's smart. And the reason being is you're getting more diverse opinions. I mean, if, if you look at investment companies like ours, I don't know the exact percentage, but my guess is we probably have 50%, at least 50 if not more of our clients are women. I said, so frankly, I should have, independent of just doing that for good marketing and good business, I need to have women on staff that can identify with women, all right? Because if, if we're looking at investment strategies or something, you know, they may have a different opinion. You know, there might be something that has to do with security, something to do with the way something gets explained or not explained, whatever it is. You know, you wanna have those diverse opinions so you can look at product segmentation that's gonna be appropriate. So in the standpoint of corporate governance, having very diverse groups is smart, frankly, in addition to being a good citizen. The same thing with regards to you know, looking at overall social consciousness, 
you know, to be able to appeal to broader groups. And the same thing with the environment. I mean, don't kill your resource. So I think when you look at it long term, very good companies, wherever possible, are doing that. And, and that you're not going to really give up much return in doing that. And indeed, if you, if you dissect major indices, the S&P 500 and others, and you, and you screen it out, you know, based upon social investing parameters, the evidence shows you actually really are not giving up return. And the fact of the matter is we, we have a, an ESG or socially responsible uh, high dividend strategy specifically that is, that is managed to very distinct parameters and profiles. And frankly, last, last year, that was our top performing strategy. Uh, overwhelming, it was our highest performing stock strategy uh, just because it, it happened to be that, frankly, certain uh, securities that are not considered socially responsible like energy and others underperformed. So it really helped that strategy. So the only thing that I mentioned to investors that you have to bear in mind is you, you are making definitive decisions to avoid, in many cases, avoid certain companies and even avoid whole sectors. So with, with the current parameters that are out there now, then most people pursuing those strategies are very limiting their, their investments in energy, they're limiting investments in nuclear power, they're limiting investments in tobacco, maybe alcohol, you're basically eliminating investments in the, in the SIN stocks and keeping that minimal. And so you just have to know where your bets are. And if, if those stocks underperform, it's going to help you, like last year. If those stocks all of a sudden outperform and let's say next year energy takes off, well, you're going to be a little behind and you have to understand why. And so as long as people look at it in an intelligent manner and it's all down to understand your bets, understand what you're doing and understand the probable effects and then you're never going to have a surprise. We know that you manage a, uh, an individual bond and also mutual fund. So what is the power of managing an individual bond versus managing a mutual fund? Well, mutual funds in general, and I'll, I can go into more specific on the bond side, but just say mutual funds in general. And, and as you alluded to, we do both. So I don't have any axe to grind. I don't have any, uh, you know, any bias because we do both. But the, but the reality is, is that the mutual funds, as is implied by their name, they're mutual investing of many people. So you are collectively putting your money together mutually to invest. All right, well, if you think about that for a minute, you know, why, why are you going to collectively put your money together with other people to mutually invest versus doing it on your own? Well, the reason is that you don't have enough money. So the whole mutual fund industry and mutual funds in general were really designed so if you didn't have enough money to either go into an investment or, or more specifically, usually you didn't have enough money to diversify. So to say you really should have you know, anywhere 30, 40, 50 stocks in the portfolio, you just didn't have enough money to diversify that much on your own based upon typical trading parameters. So they said, oh, well, let's, let's put you together with another small investor and you together with another small investor. Now we'll have a thousand small investors and together as a team, we can diversify. Okay, well, there's several things with that. Number one, you're doing it because you don't have enough money. So guess what? Once you have enough money, you don't need to do that anymore. So we have it, it works because we have smaller investors. And so it works very good for them because now they can get the 35, 40 different securities that they can't get on their own and get diversification. 
Now, once someone is large enough, and we generally look at that in most cases, depending on the investment, it tends to be 100,000 to 250,000. At that point, we can really get all the diversification that we want in that portfolio for that client individually. So there's, there's no downside uh, whatsoever. They're gonna get all the diversification. There's no downside, there's no negatives now. And, it's, and now there's only, frankly, positives. Because normally what you have is by doing an individual portfolio, now it's customized. You know, you're not just in with another thousand people or whatever. It's customized to your specific investment objectives. You can somewhat customize the timing of when you're getting in. Because if you go into a mutual fund, you're all in, you're all out. All right? Nobody's, nobody's taking your extra 20000 and then going out structuring a new portfolio. You know, you're, you're buying the existing securities that are there. Some are up, some are down. Some, they're, some they may sell tomorrow. And you're buying it and they're selling it tomorrow. And you're taking a capital gain on it because it's based upon the cost they bought it in the portfolio, not your cost. So you're taking a capital gain and you didn't even get any of the gain and because it's not customized. So by going separate at that point, once you're at that level, depending on strategy, like 100 or 250,000, well, now it's starting from scratch for you. It's being built for you. It's going to be a completely custom situation. Um, and the, one of the biggest things is that now as you add money or take money out, you can go and, and, some, and a portfolio manager can distinctly say, you know, you've got 250,000, you need to take out 30 for a new car. Well, we can go pick and choose what we're going to take out. It's not sell everything or part of everything. We can pick and choose what we're going to sell. When you put another 30,000 back in, we can pick and choose how we're going to deploy it. It just doesn't all get invested that day. And, they, and so, it's, again, we can customize it. And frankly, one of the biggest additives and biggest benefits to add additional return is, especially for taxable clients, is that you have the chance to do tax planning at the end of the year. So, look, the consequence of being in the securities markets is, hopefully, you're, you're going to have gains. I mean, that's why you're there. So, when you have gains, you're going to have stocks that run up and they run up to a certain level, we feel they're, they've hit our profit targets, we're gonna sell it and move on to something else. Or sometimes we may sell half of it. Well, when that happens, then you have a taxable event. You have a gain. You're gonna pay, not including state tax, you're gonna generally pay somewhere 10 to 20% tax on that gain. All right, well, if you're in a mutual fund, that's just it, you're done, nothing you can do. In a separate account, we can say, all right, at looking at it at the end of the year, uh, you've had $30,000 worth of realized gains. So you would have to pay, again, somewhere between 10 to 20% of that in tax. But we can look at it and say, well, wait a minute, uh, this other stock didn't do so well. All right, so it's down about $10,000. And, and what we can do, we still like it, even though it's down, but we can sell it, take the $10,000 loss, Subtract that from your $30,000 gain. So now you reduced your taxes by 30% down to $20,000 gain. And then we can turn around 30 days later after what's called the wash rule and reinvest back again into that stock that was down. So you basically took the loss. The loss was offset against your gain. You lowered your tax bill. You still went back into the same strategy and you're right back where you were, but you saved a bunch in taxes. And so that's something where a separate account distinctly and overwhelmingly is so much more tax efficient. And we have to remember, hey, it's not what you make, it's what you keep. So that's a very important aspect. 
So uh, Dan, one, why active management can be superior to indexing or plain vanilla ETF management? Well, if you look at indexing, and let's first look at indexing or ETFs. And first of all, indexes can index a lot of different things. I mean, you can index uh, or do an ETF just for energy stocks. You can do it just for small cap stocks. You can do it for big indexes like the S&P 500. And so it's, it's really trying, there's not an all-encompassing indexing or ETF strategy. It's, it's really trying to, you're buying literally an index, not individual stocks necessarily. You're buying an index that represents a certain stock category. So we have to understand what it is first of all. So you buy an S&P 500 index, it doesn't mean you're buying all 500 stocks in the S&P 500. You actually are buying, in essence, futures on the index that, that keeps track of the price of those stocks. So a little bit of technical explanation, but people have to understand, you know, it's not always what it appears to be. All right, now let's look at that. Let's take the S&P 500 for a moment because that's one of the broader indexes. It's also one of the ones that's more popular. And then, as I said, you can go down and buy it for healthcare stocks and for energy stocks and tech. You can go slice and dice it if you want. But if we look at one of the biggest that most people are gonna hear about. So the S&P 500, which theoretically is the 500 largest publicly traded companies in the country. And you're saying, okay, you know what? I'm gonna buy a piece or an index that represents a piece of all those companies. Well, first of all, Again, un understand your bets. You need to understand your bets because the, the S&P 500 does not mean that all 500 stocks are weighted equally. Matter of fact, it's quite the opposite, is that stocks that are in the S&P 500 index are what's known as dollar weighted. So basically what they do simplistically is you look at how many shares are outstanding, okay, and then you multiply that by the price of the, what the stock is selling at a, in the market. So basically if it has a million shares outstanding, it's selling at 50, then it has a market cap of 50 million. And, and that, and, but obviously these companies are very large, it's markets caps of billions, but when you look at what that value is, that market capitalization I just described, basically what's the value of the whole company is what it boils down to. You take all the shares outstanding, multiply it by the price per share, then that's what it would cost to buy the whole company if you literally bought every share out there. And when you look at the value of that, all companies are gonna be different. I mean, you're gonna have the Apples of this world and the Googles of this world, and then you're gonna have smaller companies. Well, what happens is based upon the value, then the percent that is of the total 500 value, then let's say for example that Google though it's one of the 500, is really 6% of the whole value, all right? Then Google is gonna be 6% of the index, all right? So you didn't spread your stocks among 500, you spread it among whatever you're spreading it, 6% is gonna be Google. And what you're gonna see in those indexes is that you know normally you have about 10 or 15 stocks that represent 30, 40% of the index. And then you have you know the other 450 stocks or whatever that represent much smaller amounts and the ones that are very small are like insignificant. They have almost, they're tenths of a percent and have no effect. So once again, understand what you're doing because when you buy these indexes, for example, you can look at an international. If you look at most international, 
fun, uh, indexes or ETFs, they say, oh, it's international and we've got 5,000 companies and we're spread among 65 countries. And everybody says, great, I'm diversified all over the world. I've got all these companies. And I guarantee you, if you dig down into it, because it's also capitalization weighted the way I describe, there's probably anywhere 20 to 30% that's in China, all right? Because the bigger, if you look at, take away the US, the bigger companies are gonna be in China that are internationally listed. So all of a sudden you're saying, hey, I'm totally world diversified. I got 5,000 different companies, I'm all over here. And what happened? You're 30% in China. All of a sudden there's a coronavirus, boom. You know, China's down 25%. And you're saying, what the heck happened to my portfolio? And then you dig in and say, oh, it's actually really 30% in China. And you just got your lips ripped off and you don't know what happened. All right, so know the bets that you're making. You gotta dig in. All right, if you're in an individual portfolio, that's a lot easier to see. First of all, if you have a good portfolio management team, they're never gonna let that happen. All right, you're gonna have individual positions that are typically two to 3%. They're not gonna let it get overweighted. Uh, if it starts to get overweighted, they're gonna trim it back in risk control and make sure that you're not gonna have those problems. They're gonna make sure that you're equally weighted or at least they know the bets they're making in the different sectors. So what do we have in energy? What do we have in technology? What do we have in healthcare? What do we have in industrials? And make sure you have diversification by sector, diversification by security, and you don't end up in that problem. The, the other issue you have, which is on the backside, is again, you're either all into that index or you're all out. You're, you cannot do any tax planning. And so if you have individual securities at the end of the year, you can take losses on securities to offset the realized gains and significantly reduce your tax bill. So, in, so what you're really looking at is a, a risk reduction with regards to the structuring of the portfolio and then a significant increase in efficiency and what you can do in tax planning and also planning cash inflows and outflows. We are now in a low interest rate. So the dividend income for income replacement in a low interest rate environment. Can you talk a little bit about it? We're at historically low interest rates. It's a, a real dilemma for people that are retiring now. And it's obviously the, the, the biggest baby boomer bubble in history uh, and biggest bubble in population, if you will, is now either just entering retirement or about to enter retirement. And so you have a tremendous uh, dynamic demographic where you have this largest group of the population, at least in American history, if not world history, that now needs income. And they're, and they're doing it at a time when we're at historically low interest rates, uh, frankly, ridiculously low interest rates currently and frankly for the foreseeable future because uh, I think a lot of people out there, especially the people that are retiring now, uh, were, well, when they were in college and just coming out of college, just going into the workforce, interest rates hit their all-time high. So interest rates actually hit their high in the first quarter of 1982, and we had a prime interest rate. If you were the prime best customer of the bank, the best, like a zero-risk customer, then the prime rate was 21.5% uh, of, of overall interest. And, and if you weren't prime and you were buying a car or whatever, then it was gonna be even more. So you have a generation that when they were really becoming cognizant of business and 
life outside of their parents in college, uh, you know, started off with a 20% type interest rate. And, and now you're in a position to where today, a 10-year treasury bond is 1.61. That's 10 years. And so what, not only is it a situation that they're saying, how do you live on that? But there, there tends to be a mentality, and, and frankly, I have the same mentality because I grew up with that too, is that the rates have to go back up. Is that this is crazy, and anybody, frankly, that has any money the last, you know, even 10 years or 20 years, they're saying this is nuts, it can't continue, it's got to go back up. Okay, well, tell that to Japan that's now been there for 30 years, and when they went into a major recession, you know, basically, you know, everybody thought that it was going to come back up there too. So one of the things with this generation that's also investing and, str and struggling with this level of interest rates is the level of interest rates that they grew up with, especially when they were coming out of college, going into the workforce, uh, initially trying to buy a home, having kids, and be a consumer, is that the level of interest rates was so high, as we mentioned, you know, if you were in the early 80s, it was 20%, that they mentally feel that these rates are ridiculous, don't worry about it, the rates are going to go back up. And, and that's just not necessarily true. First of all, they've been very low now and declining ever since 2008 and with the financial crisis that we had. So do the math, that's 12 years already. And you can go back and look throughout history. You know, when the, when the manufacturing started to decline in Japan uh, and go off into other areas in Southeast Asia and they were left with huge excess capacity their interest rates dropped dramatically. The economy went into a major recession. And everybody thought, eh, they'll be back in two or three years. Well, that, that's now been about 35 years, and they're still struggling and probably will never get back to where they were. So we have to bear in mind that the interest rates and all the dynamics for interest rates staying low are going to stay probably low for a long period of time. And also bear in mind that as much as I like bonds, we manage several billion dollars worth of bonds. If interest rates do start rising at some point, well, now you're fighting a headwind because as rates go up, the price of bonds go down. It's an inverse relationship. So, so be careful what you wish for because you're much better off to be investing in bonds when rates are high and declining than low and stable or low and rising. So when you begin to look at alternatives, and I mentioned I managed several billion dollars worth of bonds, so don't get me wrong, I like bonds. And, and bonds have a place. But right now, the place of bonds generally with the rates as low as they are, are for security. They're just not going to be where they're providing extensive total returns. So look, you've got to have a certain amount of bonds if you're approaching retirement. You don't want to be all stocks. As, we, as we've seen recently and in throughout history, it's a dangerous world out there. Stuff happens. And, and when stuff happens, the market is going to react to it and you don't want to be in the wrong place at the wrong time, so you certainly want to have a balanced portfolio. But the, that doesn't eliminate the need for income. People still need to live, and portfolios have to generate certain amounts of money, hopefully without attaching principal, for people to survive. So the reality is right now, and again, we've been an income manager focused on income for over a half century that we've been in business, and so we've been through a lot of different cycles, and you, you have to learn to adapt. Uh, and even though we manage a lot of bonds, we manage a lot of uh, other types of equity solutions, without a doubt right now, the best solution for people that are preparing for retirement, people are, that are in retirement, is really high dividend stocks. 
I mean, the, uh, the stocks, at least from our perspective, different people may be different, but we're right now paying about 3.6% from dividends. And it's been very, very consistent, you know, over the last 15 years. And then generating total returns that, that are very, very strong and into low di uh, double-digit territory, depending upon the time period. And, and if you want more information about that, then we'll be happy to provide you with information showing that distinctly. Uh, but it suffice to say that when you look at a high dividend portfolio, you're really striving for an 8 to 10% total return and then hoping to get 35 to 4% from income. Well, I think anybody in this environment, if, if they said, you know, if I could reasonably target an 8 to 10% return, then they would probably be happy with that. So let's say for the sake of the math, you say, boy, I'd really like to have a 10% return. Well, if you're getting almost 4% from dividends, you're starting on the 40-yard line. So every year you start off and already have 35, 40% of your goal. If you're happy with 8%, you already have 50% of your goal. And so you have a, you've dramatically increased the certainty of reaching your total return. The, the other thing that happens is that, bear in mind, this is not a stagnant environment. So dividends are being increased every year. So we're buying companies that not only are paying a high rate of return, currently 3.6% in yield, but ones that are increasing dividends every year. And on average, those dividends are increasing 8 to 10% a year. So most people, when they were working, certainly weren't in a position to where they were getting an 8 to 10% raise every year. And what we're doing is that in those portfolios, they're generating, in essence, what's an 8 to 10% raise or increase in cash flow every year, you know, regardless of what the up and down cycle is in the market and in pricing. So that's a, a very, very big component because the math is pretty simple. If you're going up 10% a year, about three years out, because it's compounded, you know, you're up about 36, 37% in higher income. So if you could sit there and say, well, three years out, you know, I'm making 35, 40% higher income, that's not a bad place to be, regardless of what the market's gonna do. And so that increase in income is a very, very important component. So when you look at, at these types of portfolios, the current yield is very important, Increase in yield is very important because guess what? Cost of living has gone up. You know, you want to be in a position that where very few investments are, where it's actually increasing the income every year. And then obviously the final component is we're trying to have total return. And, and in essence, we're really just trying to buy big, very conservative stocks, companies that they're growing earnings six to 8% a year. And if I can get my dividend, my increasing dividend, if I can buy the stocks right and just track the earnings increases, I don't even need any PE multiple expansion. All I have to do is track earnings. Well, guess what that adds up to? You got three and a half, four percent from dividends. You track earnings at, at six to eight percent. Over the long term, you can reasonably target a, a 10 percent type of return. And, and now you have a strong return with inflation hedge. You have high current income and, and income that's increasing. And, and that's what we do with you know, our staff of almost 70 people is to try to find those ideas, single point good ideas, good stocks that achieve that, and then also make sure that all those stocks marry together properly in the portfolio to control risk, you know, to be able to meet your objectives. As the CEO of RNC Genter and also with all of your experience, 
now for 2020, what is the overlook? I mean, let, let's start with the big picture. We're going to start with the 40,000 foot macro and then we'll, we'll funnel it down. And the, so if we look at the big picture, economic growth is still positive and that's the key. Uh, U.S. right now, by any, any indications, is not going into a recession. All right, if we look at you know, the biggest overhang that we certainly have had the last two years has been the, the Ch Chinese trade uh, situation and a, and a very significant concern that that was going to accelerate into a full-blown trade war. Uh, that would have significant contagion uh, throughout the world and have a significant impact on U.S. corporate earnings. So what we're seeing is that, number one, not having as significant an impact on corporate earnings and that U.S. companies are very, very diversified and, frankly, we're just not that reliant. We import a lot from China, but we're just not that reliant on selling to China, except for distinct groups. So we're, and those are being supplemented by the government, such as soybean farmers and some of the heavy equipment and agriculture and so on. So it's just not having, not having that much of an effect on us. Uh, the other positive is that obviously we're making some progress and we're, you know, we're uh, taking away some of the tension and making progress with China. So that situation, barring something I've ever seen, should either be non-influential or it's going to be less than what people looked at in a worst case scenario. Uh, we're always going to have, uh, you know, as we're talking today, obviously we're dealing with the coronavirus, uh, which is becoming maybe not as crescendoed yet but it's becoming more and more controlled. Uh, it's clearly not going to destroy the civilized world as we know it. Uh, but, you know, the market took a little hit. Now it's made it all back up. But that's why you're diversified, because those things happen. So, it's, so with that, you know, summing that up, we're really going to see GDP growth in the U.S., which may fall below 2% uh, and is likely to be somewhere 1.5% to 1.7%. But most importantly, it's still positive. All right, now, with that level of growth, you're going to see earnings growth slow from last year, but we're likely to see earnings growth of 5 to 6%, which also is still positive. And so then you begin to look at the other factors of saying, well, I've got a slow economy, which is growing. I have slow earnings growth, still positive, growing. Then where's the general valuation of stocks on a, on a relative market basis historically? Well, the fact is they're not cheap, uh, and you can't say that they're cheap. Uh, actually, they're about two PE multiple points above long-term averages. Uh, so they're not, you know, they're not radically expensive, but they're not cheap. Uh, but the other factor that comes into play is that interest rates right now are very, very low. All right, and, and here's the practical reality. There's all kinds of models that go through this, and the the discounted cap rate on stocks and all kinds of crazy stuff we can go through. Um, but, and, and there's mathematical reasons for that. Um, but generally speaking, what happens is that when interest rates are very low, common sense just dictates bonds are not as attractive. Now, you, you don't need a PhD in economics to figure that out. All right? If interest rates are 2%, they're not as attractive as 4%. It's real easy. So stocks look more attractive because bonds look less attractive. And generally what people are going to look at is they're going to look at, to be technically uh, you know, oriented for just a moment, they look at earnings yields on stocks. What's the price of the stock versus the earnings you're getting? What percentage are you getting versus the price? And they look at that yield versus the yield on bonds. They're looking at dividends and they're making a decision, stocks or bonds. Well, we manage a lot of bonds. 
So I don't have a lot of bias one way or the other, but right now the stocks are just more attractive. Uh, with the yields that are there, the dividend flows, the total returns, it's just going to be the superior performing asset class. So when we start to narrow that down to say, well, we're not going in a recession. we got positive growth. We have positive earnings growth, though it's low and slight. Uh, individual companies are growing. The share values are a little bit extended, but not radically. And the fact is people don't have a lot of alternative, so they're going to be willing to pay a little more for stocks because the interest rates are low. So we look at the overall stock market just to filter that down and say, reasonably speaking, we think that you're in a position to where you're probably not gonna have any PE multiple expansion. You're going to basically realize the growth in earnings, five to 6% plus your dividend. Even though our dividends are higher, pushing 4%, the overall market's a little less than two. So if you said you track earnings at five to six plus your two, you know, we're somewhere at six to 8% overall return parameter for the equity market at large, and which is clearly going to be the superior performing asset class.